Well, welcome to our second lesson in church history. This is about the Restoration Movement. Because there's some questions that are still going on, like, did the Reformers go far enough? You know, many of the practices, many of the doctrines that uh, were introduced by the Catholic Church or the Popes were kept by the denominations. And the question was, did they return to doing things the way the scriptures said they should be done, such as elders and deacons, or even worship, what belongs in worship, or church government, how should the church be run? Should there be councils? Should there be um, uh, independent government by the church? Uh, how is that to be done? There, there were many things that were left to be restored for the church. And that gives us the foundation of the restoration movement of which we are a part. It is a movement that continues on. And as we see that we're doing things in an unbiblical manner, then we will try to change those things. But let's go back to history. Let's go back to the, to the close of the um, 18th century. Revival was beginning in the United States, and the churches were really, really divided. There were 12 kinds of Presbyterian churches. I mean, there were 13 different types of Baptist faiths. And the Methodists were divided into 17 different groups. So it was quite a, a change that took place. Now, there were men in history that saw that this was wrong, and they wanted to do something about it. They wanted to restore things to the way the scriptures spoke. One such person was James O'Kelly. From 1757 to 1826 he lived. Uh, I like his beard. I wondered if his wife did. But anyway, O'Kelly, along with four other Methodist ministers, withdrew in 1794 from that body, which was the Methodist Episcopal Church. And they formed what was known as the Republican Methodist Church. That was in August of uh, 1795. They had a meeting. And in the meeting, a man by the name of Rice Haggard said, Brethren, this is sufficient. And he held up a Bible. He says, this is a sufficient rule of faith. The Bible. It is the rule of faith and how we should live. By it, we are told that disciples were called Christians. And I move that from henceforth and forever that the followers of Christ be known as Christians simply. Or sometimes we say Christians only. Now, Hafferty was from North Carolina, he stood up, he makes a motion that they should take the Bible itself as their only creed, that they should get rid of all the other creeds 
And from these two motions, they made five cardinal principles. Uh, I'll, I'll give you what they are. Um, the first one is the Lord Jesus Christ is the only head of the church. The second one is the name Christian to the exclusion of all party and sectarian names. In other words, they wanted to get rid of the denominational names. Uh, the Holy Bible or scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments is our only creed. And it's the sufficient rule of faith and how we should live. Number four, the Christian character or vital piety. In other words, the how we should live should be the only test of church fellowship and of membership. The right of private judgment and liberty of conscience and the privilege and duty of all is number five. In other words, you can have opinions. You're allowed to have the right of private judgment. And uh, in 1801, the name Republican Methodist was discarded in favor of Christians. And that's what they used, the word Christian. Now, there's another man by the name of Elias Smith. And uh, in 1769 to 1847, he lived. And along with another gentleman by the name of Abner Jones, in 1772 to 1841, uh, he lived. And these two are going to come together. But Abner Jones was a physician, but he was also a preacher. And he preached in Baptist churches all through Vermont. He preached against creeds, against sectarian names, denominational membership, and party distinctions. He preached against such things as that. Uh, <clears throat> now, Elias Smith was a Baptist preacher, and he joined Abner Jones, Jones, and they succeeded in having several congregations drop their creeds and call themselves Christians, Christians only. And that was, that was clear back uh, in time. Uh, as revival was going on in the United States. Well, Barton W. Stone came along. He lived in 1772 and 1844. Uh, he came along and he was born in Tobacco Creek, Maryland. In other words, he was born in the United States. His father died when he was three years old. He moved to Dan River, North Carolina. And the estate was divided up, and Barton used his portion to get an education. Well, he became a judge, and he went to the school of David Caldwell in North Carolina. And the reason why he did that was because of the influence of religion in the school, and the Presbyterian minister by the name of James McGrady. Barton left the school for Hampton Sydney College in Virginia. Now, he heard McGrady preach, but Barton W. Stone struggled to, quote, get religion. At that time, you had to have a personal experience 
you you had to get religion. And Barton W. Stone just wasn't sure that God had predestined him to be saved because he felt he wasn't having this experience. When William Hodge, a Methodist minister, preached on love, the love of God, Stone concluded that God loved him, and because of that love, he could be saved. Well, he was determined then to be a preacher, and he applied for a license to preach from the Orange Presbytery. Now, Presbytery is a council, a group that is over certain churches in that region. Now, Stone had a problem with the confession of faith. That is a creed that was used. But while he was applying for this license, he was asked to agree to agree upon the confession of faith during his ordination. And they asked him if he received the confession of faith and adopted it to his teachings. He said, I do as far as I see it consistent with the word of God. And for Barton W. Stone, the word of God became the defining principle which to judge all things in belief. Now, Stone's views and his preachings were considered unorthodox by most of his Presbyterian preacher friends who were strict Calvinist. That predestination came in. And the real division came by the Kentucky Synod, that's another group, which met in order to condemn Stone and four other Presbyterian ministers. Well, on September 1803, these men met and they formed a group of their own. They called it the Springfield Presbytery. They sent out letters to other churches telling of their separation from the Presbyterian church and that they would abandon all creeds except the Bible. And in June of 1804, they decided to reconsider their position on the government of the New Testament church. And since they had belonged to the Springfield Presbytery, they decided to dissolve that group and they wrote a document entitled The Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery. And in it, they explained why they were dissolving that because of not being scriptural. Well, Barton preached in Kentucky, and he established what was known as New Testament churches. Now, they called it New Testament churches because it was based on how New Testament churches were governed and how they functioned. It was not until 1824 that Stone and Alexander Campbell met. They finally had a meeting in 1824. And full fellowship with each group, uh, they came together. It didn't happen until 1832. Now, I mentioned this. It's important to note that Barton W. Stone and these other men that I have mentioned arrived at the restoration principles through their own Bible study without knowing the other men. 
they came to the same conclusions by reading the scriptures and the Bible. Now, usually we as a movement are known from uh, Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell, those two men. Uh, and at times we've been called Campbellites, and that's not fair because this was a movement that began long before Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell. Thomas Campbell was Alexander's uh, father. He lived around 1763 to 1854. Now, he was born in Ireland. And in Ireland, as you know in history of the church, went back and forth and back and church uh, between what church was the state government. Now, his father was a Catholic. And then he became a member of the Church of England. While you may remember that in England, the church changed between Catholic and the Church of England. Now, he was accustomed to saying that he served God according to the Act of Parliament, because Parliament would decide what the state religion was. Uh, And so he felt this tension. But he got his education in Glasgow, Scotland. And Thomas became a member. And get this, this is how divided the Presbyterian church was at the time. He became a member of the Succeeder Presbyterian Church. Now, I'll get into that in a little bit here, what that means. But... uh, this disappointed Thomas's Campbell's father, and he entered the divinity school at Whitburn. Now, what he really became was an old light, anti-burger succeeder. And what that meant was the succeeders, of course, when you succeed something, you withdraw they withdrew from the Church of Scotland over issues of church and government. The government became involved in the church. But the succeeders soon divided over an oath. And that was required for those becoming part of the Burgesses. Now, they're holder of government offices. Uh... And so there was division there. And then they became the old lights held to the belief that holding to the right doctrine was more important than pious living. While the new lights held that doctrine was not as important as living a pious life. And so Thomas became an old light, which meant hold to the right doctrine, and an anti Burger, Succeeder Presbyterian. Pretty confusing, isn't it? Well, because of Thomas's health, uh, he decided to leave Ireland in 1807 and to come to America. He left his family in Ireland and he would send for them later. In America... He went to the synod, and once again, that's the council, the groups that have the churches in Philadelphia. 
and they assigned him to the presbytery of uh, Chartiers in Pennsylvania. So he began preaching, but that group did not agree with his acceptance to unite with other denominations. In fact, many times Thomas Campbell would speak at other denominational churches, and he was barred from speaking in his church then. So when that happened, he preached everywhere he could. He pleaded for unity upon the scriptural order of things according to the Bible. And he ended every sermon with these famous words. Now, it's not new to Thomas Campbell, but he used these words all the time. He said, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. So he held to that belief. And he decided to make a declaration and address of what he felt the church should be like. Number one, he said there's but one church of Christ. There's only one true church. And two, there ought to be no schisms or divisions, no no dividing of that. Number three, nothing ought to be taught as articles of faith or terms of communion, but what is expressively written in the Word of God. Uh, sometimes you may be denied communion in the Presbyterian church. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Number four, the New Testament is the constitution for worship, discipline, and government of the New Testament church. That the New Testament shows us how the church worshipped. Number five, if the scriptures are silent on a point, no human authority has the right to make laws for the church. Number six, those who realize they are lost and are willing to profess faith in Christ in obedience to him according to his word should be admitted to the church. Now, many times they would ask, did you have an experience? What was your experience? And by your experience um, with God, some miraculous thing, then you could be admitted to the church. Thomas Campbell felt that they just need to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. And the seventh one was that human expedience may be necessary to the fulfillment of a command, but should never be adopted by causing contention or division. Thomas Campbell saw a lot of division in the church. Now, Remember that Thomas had come to America first. His son and his family are still in Ireland, and they would soon come. His son's name was Alexander Campbell. He lived in 1788 to 1866. And Alexander, of course, was born in Ireland. He's still there. And he was educated in his younger years by his father. He was fluent in French, Latin, Greek, 
English, and philosophy. Alexander Campbell became known as the man who had a sharp intellect. When his father went to America in 1807, uh, Alexander began to think for things. He decided that he would meet his father in 1808, so he left for America. But his ship wrecked. And so, as a result of that, he couldn't go on. He entered the University of Glasgow. Now, you know, what's interesting is many times tragedy happens in our way, and God is using that tragedy to develop us, to mature us, to to make us think, to make us uh, better. But it was there that he began to question the Succeeder Presbyterian Church. Now, he was afraid to tell his father about these concerns. He's afraid his father would be upset with him. So while he was there, he began to question whether any man had the right to restrict another man from taking the Lord's Supper. Each man was given a token. If they passed certain tests, if they were found worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so when they went up to the communion uh, table, they would then pass that token to show that they had been examined. Well, Alexander Campbell did not believe in that, and he turned his token in, and he didn't take communion. Well, he left for America on August the 3rd, eighteen. And he landed September the 29th. He met his father a few days later on the road to Pennsylvania. While he was greeted by his father, his father was carrying that declaration and address proof sheets in his saddlebags. And they began to talk. They were shocked to find that during their time apart, both men had decided to separate from the Presbyterian Church. Now, Alexander Campbell soon became the spokesperson for this movement to restore the church back to the scriptures. He had extensive knowledge on many subjects. He he lectured all around the country. And he not only lectured about the Bible, or Christianity. He lectured on social science, on moral philosophy, on literature, the destiny of our country, the education, the public schools, even demonology. And also, he was a farmer, so he dealt with soil conservation. Now, during this time, he became very involved in in politics, And President James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, said of Campbell, I regard him as the ablest and most original expounder of scripture I have ever heard. Well, he went on to edit a monthly paper. He even founded and taught at Bethany School. He preached an average of four sermons a week, 
and he authored over 60 books. He was also an avid debater, so he would debate the scriptures with those who disagreed with him. He was a successful farmer. He was a lecturer on agriculture twice annually. He went on a preaching tour to neighboring states. And even around here in um, Ohio, he had preached in some of the churches that are still in existence. He carried on correspondence or letters with people all around the world. Some of the debates he did, I just want to give you some of them, not details on them, but I want you to know that the topics on which he debated. And you can, you can look up these debates. Uh, one was with John Walker on the modes and subjects of baptism. You know, sprinkling versus um, immersion. Or do children get baptized or adults? That was June uh, of 1820. Mount uh, Place on uh, Ohio. And William uh, McCullough was on baptism. He did that. Robert Owen, the evidence of Christianity. Robert Owen didn't believe in, in God. Uh, John Purcell, Roman Catholicism. He debated on Roman Catholicism. Nathan Price, the modes and subjects, purpose of baptism, operation of the Holy Spirit on creeds and uh, Christian union. Uh, that was November the 1st in Lexington, Kentucky. His first sermon on baptism was November the 1st, 1810. But he already had a child. Uh, Jane was her name, and she was born in March 12th, 1812, and she had been sprinkled. So, what about Alexander Campbell's baptism? He was sprinkled. Well, he soon realized that it was wrong, that the word baptism meant to dip, plunge, or immerse. And so, he became immersed by a Baptist preacher, uh, Matthias Luce, and uh, he was also baptized without the, quote, religious experience that many of the denominations wanted to see. And Campbell's first church was founded there on May the 4th, 1811, and it was called Brush Run Church. Now, when Alexander, his wife, his father, mother, and sister, and Mr. and Mrs. James uh, Hannon was baptized, it really opened the door. Thirteen more were baptized, immersed into Christ the following Sunday. Well, they developed a four basic restoration principles. We have no creed but Christ. And so, and no creed except the scriptures. So we do not take this as a creed. I simply want to mention what these principles were, and it helps us understand what we hold on to. 
and that is that the New Testament scriptures was the only authority for rule of faith and practice for the Christians, except only those things that were prescribed in the New Testament when it applied to the church, and that they would renounce all human creeds with the acceptance of the precepts and examples of Jesus as the only creed binding on Christians. And number four, the restoration of the apostolic or the the rule of the apostles in the New Testament uh, concept of the church was in the minds of men that worshiping and pat- patters, pattering of our lives need to be after the divine pattern found in scriptures. And that the union of all Christians upon the basis of the Bible. Now, restoration is a work in progress. We at First Christian Church of Malvern has changed some of our practices, realizing that they did not line up with what the New Testament said. So it's an ongoing practice. It's a, that's why we call it a movement. That's why we say we are not a denomination. We are a movement. We are a brotherhood of believers in Jesus Christ. And so the restoration movement began. Now, we're going to talk about some of those principles next week and uh, in the weeks following. So we hope that uh, this gives you an understanding of why we believe what we believe and how we came about to study the scriptures and realize that certain things were not following what the Bible says. So, have a good day and may God bless you and keep you.